HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Heritage Foods USA, the nation's largest distributor of heritage breed pigs and turkeys. For more information, visit heritagefoodsusa.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Hey, and welcome to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkell, here today with Nicole Galata of Eat This Poem, both the blog and now the book. Now, I'm going to start by reading a little bit of poetry. And I'm sure you've heard this one before. This is Just to Say, William Carlos Williams. I have eaten the plums that were in the icebox, and which you were probably saving for breakfast. Forgive me. They were delicious, so sweet. And so cold. It, it, it's such a wonderful verse. Uh, apologetic, but at the same time, like, unabashed that, you know, they, they, they were too good to pass up. Do you <laughs> leave little notes like that for your husband around the house? You know, I don't very often, although I did leave some notes when I was leaving uh, to come to New York. Mostly just reminders about food to feed our son while (laughs) (laughs) that that seems like important (laughs) notes to leave behind but you know let's talk about food and literature in in the character arc of your life uh you were a picky eater you (laughs) you kind of didn't care about food until it was necessary yeah that's exactly right i really grew up and had very little interest in food i ate food because i needed to but i had no interest in cooking at all and my parents, when they sent me off for college, were very concerned about <laughs> my domestic abilities. And I learned to cook because I had to. So my sophomore year, I moved into my own apartment and I lost my dining hall pass. So I had to figure out how to cook. And I would come home during my lunch breaks and I would watch the Food Network, and that's when I learned a lot of the really basic things like how to smash a clove of garlic and how to chop an onion and just started learning 
basic recipes. But in the meantime, I was still heating up, you know, frozen curly fries <laughs> and making grilled cheese sandwiches. It started out really slowly, but I, you know, I started to figure out a few things and sort of started to really gain a sense of my own intuition in the kitchen. And that's when I guess the transition started happening when I started paying a lot more attention to food and realizing how much I loved it. It wasn't just that I needed to eat and sustain myself, but there was a whole other world out there. Yeah. But there's such funny parody between the collegiate's kitchen and the barefoot Contessa. Yeah. And, you know, you you set the stage and she has this like beautiful vista or she's cooking outside and the locks are flowing and I'm still, you're, you're cooking for sustenance at that point. Oh, yes, I absolutely was. Um, but I loved that at that time, her recipes and Giada De Laurentiis, too, the recipes just felt very accessible and they often didn't have too many ingredients in them. And there were things that, you know, my roommates and I could could make for ourselves and feel like we accomplished something. So for that, um, even though yeah, I do still watch the show and see her in the Hamptons, I'm like, I want that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, and I know you went to school creative writing in Vermont, mm. uh, uh, you know, literature in Santa Barbara, which is a beautiful vista it as is, well. Actually, but I was reading your blog, and you said this fascinating thing uh, that there are two kinds of cooking: there's aspirational and real life. And I've always thought that about writing as well. Mm. So, talk to me about whether or not you see those parallels, and if if so, what they are. <sighs> Interesting. I I think you might be right. So with aspirational real life cooking, I'm sort of in this place now where I used to be able to do the aspirational thing. I had time to make my own bread. If I wanted to learn how to make croissants or do something that was really labor intensive, I usually had the time to do it. So I have an 18 month old and you know, I don't have the same amount of time as I used to. So between work and parenting and all that, I'm finding my cooking is definitely in kind of the less is more category and just simple, you know, recipes that I can just, I don't even need a recipe. I just come home and I pull stuff out of the pantry and I know what to do with it now. And I don't have that same time to really, you know, just pour over all these cookbooks that I love and I still read and that I mark up with post-it notes and have time to sit and, you know, make a menu from all of that. I'm trying to get back to that, but I'm, I definitely feel that sense of real life versus aspirational. And with writing, I guess I would maybe look at it more as time being that real life versus aspirational, because I think for writers, one of our biggest issues is lack of time or our perceived lack of time. And we always want more of it. And so we have to really operate within the reality of our current circumstances and work with the time that we do have and the schedule limitations that we have versus that dream that we might have of, you know, going off on, you know, a two week writing retreat in Italy or, or something like that. So, yeah. I remember having a teacher once that said poetry is for writers that don't have time to (laughs) do prose. And I I thought it was so funny, you know, obviously spatially, poetry is usually less of a page or less of a a bound book than, than, you know, fiction or nonfiction. But less is more also made me realize you're working with things that are so transparent that you have to make those the best and uh, make decisions that illuminate them in a way that... If, if you had, you know, 50 pages, it, it wouldn't be the same as, as five stanzas. Right, right. Yeah, I love that. And I think with poetry, 
in the reading of poetry too. I think it's great with time because poetry is so short. You can read two or three poems in a span of maybe four or five minutes and feel like you've accomplished something (laughs) as opposed to starting novels and then I fall asleep, you know, (laughs) 10 pages in. Yeah, but you could ruminate on those short poems forever. Yes, yeah, you absolutely could. And that's what I did actually when I was writing the book. I would read a poem and then on my commute to work, I would think about the poem and the things that I might be able to say about it. So it can definitely just pepper your life in that way. When you're doing something like creative writing, first of all, what does creative mean underneath the umbrella of writing? That's a good question. I think, I mean, it's probably different for everyone. I think creativity, that's always the mysterious thing about it is it can't 100% be explained or articulated. And I think we each interact with it differently, but to me, I see creativity as being whatever story that I need to tell right now, whatever my soul is feeling like I need to say. So when did those two things kind of converge, both writing and food? So that started in 2011, in December, right before I started the Eat This Poem blog. And I think I should back up and give a little bit of context to that. So I actually had started a different food blog in 2008, and this was at the suggestion of a friend. So I had finished grad school where I'd studied poetry, and then I went through this experience where I kind of stopped writing for a while and reading poetry, and I was just trying to figure out how to be a writer and also you know, work full-time and sort of have this new schedule. So I was trying to figure out that whole thing, and I was starting to cook more, and read a lot less poetry and write a lot less poetry. And we had a friend over for dinner one night and I was complaining about how my day job just was not fulfilling me creatively. I need, I, I needed something else to do. We, we've never heard that before. Never on our show. That. <laughs> <laughs> uh, which I think it's how a lot of blogs tend to get started. And so he suggested starting a food blog, which I had never really considered before. And I had been cooking pretty seriously for the last few years. And I w- had always been interested in writing and photography and it seemed like a good good thing to do. So I started my first food blog in 2008. And at that point, I had never really written about food before. So I feel like that blog helped me become a food writer and sort of find my voice in food. And then about three years in to that, I started feeling this itch. You know that feeling where you know something's not right, but you don't know what the answer is quite yet. I was just sort of sitting in that space, feeling like, okay, this blog isn't really doing it for me anymore, but I didn't know where to go from there. And that that's when I started realizing how far away I had gotten from poetry. It was sort of this slow transition, and I, I guess I didn't realize how much I had really left it behind. And so I started to crave poetry again. And I wanted to sort of reconnect with that side of myself that I, in some ways felt like I had abandoned almost, but because my life looked so different than it did before, I didn't know how to do that. I didn't know how to read poetry again and, and access it again. So Fast forward to December 2011, and I'm standing in my hallway where we had a cabinet of books where I kept all my poetry books saved over from from school. And it was a rainy day, and I just sort of felt that nudge, like, just open the cabinet and see what's there. (laughs) And so I pulled down a book of poems by Louise Gluck, and I started flipping through it, and 
looking at some of the places that I had underlined before, the pages that I had dog-eared, and I landed on this poem called Baskets. And in that poem, we meet a woman in the first section who is at a market, and she's inspecting lettuces, and she's shopping for lemons and picking up eggs. And all of a sudden... I think I might have even said out loud, I can make a recipe from this. I can cook something from this poem. And it really was one of those light bulb moments for me because I had been studying poetry and reading it for so long, but I had never paid any attention to food in poetry. And because I had been so focused on food for the last few years, all of a sudden I could reconnect with poetry in a completely new way. And three weeks later, I had closed down my old blog and I started Eat This Poem. You know, part of doing that too is kind of figuring out these good writing habits, um, be it daily blog posts. Uh, it's so apropos that you have tea in your hand because <laughs> I know that is one of your vices slash aids. Um, but, but it is this thing that needs to be practiced. It's kind of like the foundations of cooking. If, if you don't do it all the time, you're not going to you know, have it rotely right. saved in your muscle memory and, and, and get better every time yeah. you do it. And I know you do the nourished writer. Uh, you kind of have this collaborative of people that help push each other towards accomplishing better writing habits. Right. Right. I think writing habits are things, I guess when I was a younger writer, I didn't really maybe appreciate the value of habits or how they could help me. I think also when your schedule is freer, (laughs) you know, you can just write anytime whenever you feel that whim, but there really is something to creating sustainable habits that work for you in whatever stage of life that you're in. And you do need to be paying attention to what those are and sort of figuring out ways that it can work for you because otherwise you won't be able to fit it in. So We're going to take a quick break, but before that, I'm going to read one more poem. I'm going to let you read the next one. <laughs> this is more poetry than I've read in, in ages, but this is Tree by Jane Hirschfield. It is foolish to let a young redwood grow next to a house. Even in this one lifetime, you will have to choose. That great calm being, this clutter of soup pots and books, Already the first branch tips brush at the window, softly, calmly. Immensity taps at your life. And we're going to come back and talk about a pot of beans. You've been listening to The Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. We'll be right back. Foods USA is a farm-to-table online butcher and founding sponsor of Heritage Radio Network. Heritage Foods got its start when Patrick Martin's first stepped foot onto Frank Reese's Kansas farm in 2001. Back then, Frank was the only farmer in America raising true heritage turkeys with recorded lineages tracing back more than 150 years. Patrick knew instantly he'd found a unique moment, an opportunity to go beyond acknowledging these breeds as being jeopardized and to actually do something to save them. Patrick asked Frank to ramp up production and made a promise to him that if he would raise them, Heritage Foods USA would sell them. 
That was the moment that Heritage Foods slogan, Eat Them to Save Them, was born. By creating a market for delicious meats from Heritage Breeds, we can ensure they'll be around for generations to come. Plus, Heritage Breeds just tastes a whole lot better. Learn more at HeritageFoodsUSA.com and use the code HeritageRadio for two free pork chops with your first order, brother. Hey, and welcome back to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Jerkel, here again with Nicole Galata of Eat This Poem. And we just finished last segment uh, with a poem about a tree. And I wonder how you got from a tree to a recipe about a pot of white beans. Sure. So in this poem, there is a really, the, the line that sort of struck me, that great calm being this clutter of soup pots and books. And so when I was thinking about how to create recipes from this poem, that was sort of the section that was underlined and highlighted. And she doesn't mention beans or any particular soup ingredients. So this one is a little bit more kind of open to interpretation, but she does mention a soup pot. And that is something that I think is very comforting, the idea of, you know, warm soup just sliding down your throat. And it's just, it's sort of a calming food. And so I thought about soup and I thought about all the things that you can make in a big stew pot and beans. It's something that is so simple, but you can do so many things with it. It's so versatile and uh, you can make beans, you can make soup, you can make stew. So all of these really sort of comforting foods, which I think go well with a poem like this when you're also kind of tackling big life questions and this idea of immensity tapping at your life, whether it's, you know, a big decision that you are making or something small that you're reckoning with, whatever it is, just this idea of sort of encountering nature in its own element, but also having it kind of brush right up against you and just forces you to question some things about your life. And I think if you're eating soup while you're doing that, it might make it a little easier. I think I have most of my (laughs) posits and theories while eating soup. But talk about immensity. Uh, How do you choose from a plethora of poems which ones to include? And then from there, what recipes to kind of project off of that? It was not an easy process. I So when I started... I actually had, I had maybe 75 poems that I was thinking about using. And these all came from a few different places. So I had, of course, all of my books that I owned and I went through them and found poems that had food references and I made photocopies of them. I looked at some places online like the New Yorker and Poetry Magazine and some that I had just saved via email. They just sort of came from all over. At one point, I was working really close to a public library branch and on my lunch breaks, I would just go down there and just kind of check out the poetry section and take snaps with my phone if I found something. So I had all of these poems kind of laid out and then I had to go through and start figuring out which ones I could really use for the book. And I started by just reading them all and kind of what I just talked to you through where I would underline things that kind of jumped out at me, especially any ingredient references. And then in the margins, I would just start jotting down some ideas about what I could make from the ingredients in the poem. And I also was thinking about what I could say about the poem. So it wasn't just that the poem needed to have some recipes in it that I could develop, but I needed to be able to say something meaningful and hopefully insightful about the poem and maybe connect it to a personal story of mine. So the poem sort of had to tick a lot of boxes to get to that final list. And then the first iteration of 
my table of contents actually had 40 poems in it. And I ended up needing to cut it down to the 25 that are actually in here. So it was a lot of thinking and pondering. And I would, I really liked working with them on paper so that I could put the poems in piles and kind of batch them and see how they felt together. So it was a lot of just kind of sorting through and letting letting myself have the time and space to be able to do that and form connections between the poems and between, you know, the poem and the the ingredients that they were mentioning and also connect that back with my own stories and my own history. And, and all of that takes time to, to really think about. So I was trying not to rush it. <laughs> Whereas writing a book usually is an ominous, large, arduous, uh, uh, you know, undertaking. I feel like you got a lot of reflection and almost uh, soothing therapy out of this. <laughs> I did in, in some ways. And maybe that was because the way I approached writing this book was a little bit different than some, some people do. So I didn't actually have a contract in place before I started writing. And in some ways that was kind of freeing for me because I did feel like I needed that time and space to think and ponder and make connections. And if I had this deadline circled on the calendar, I'm not sure my brain would have been able to just relax and sort of access that creative place that I needed to. So I just sort of wrote the book within the rhythm of my life. And, and that really worked for me. I mean, talk about cyclical nature, uh, blueberries by Diane Lockwood, um, is turned into both blueberry buckwheat pancakes, but also these blueberry bran muffins, which you have every Christmas morning while opening up gifts. But, but I think my favorite poem, um, not necessarily because of the poem itself, but because of how it resonated with me was Bruce Weigel's Weigel's, uh, home. Yes. Because of, I think you wrote it too about home is wherever you are, mm-hmm. you know, and, and how that means something different for everybody. But as long as they carry that with them, uh, they feel like they're in the right place. Yeah, I really love, I love that. And I remember, I think I talked about this in the minestrone recipe when my husband and I moved to Los Angeles, that was a new city for us. And we didn't feel like we were at home yet after we had gotten there. And I was interviewing for jobs and I met this woman and she told me that she had lived with her husband in LA for the last 30 years. And they moved here for, he was a professor at UCLA. They moved for his job. And she actually said to me, home is wherever we are together. And I went home and, you know, cooked something in our new apartment. And I just sort of really carried that with me in it. It was something that helped me feel more comfortable when we were in a new place. And I think a lot of people resonate with that. Yeah. At the same time, that poem also spawned a recipe about spaghetti with parsley and garlic oil, which is from Romania. Right. (laughs) Yeah. So we're kind of traveling the globe with this poem. Yeah. That recipe, um, I was on a a work trip Um, at the time. I was working at a foundation that gave grants to nonprofits. And I was in Romania evaluating a nonprofit for a potential grant. And I was visiting orphanages and meeting with government officials and kind of dealing with, you know, just sort of some tough emotional stuff to see. And we were driving in the mountains to the north of the country where we were going to be staying for the next few days. I was with people I didn't know. And the guy that was kind of our, uh, he worked for the organization that I was evaluating and he was kind of touring us around. And he said, I know a guy at an Italian who owns an Italian restaurant in this little town. 
And it was about 10 o'clock at night and we showed up there and I was just so grateful that it was an Italian restaurant because (laughs) for me, Italian food is my comfort food. And so I thought no matter what, I'll be able to get something that I know I'm going to love and that will just make me feel like I'm at home. And I ordered probably the simplest thing on the menu. And the server even asked if I was sure (laughs) that that's what I wanted. And I said, absolutely. 100%. 100%. I just want the pasta with the parsley oil. <laughs> Oddly for me, it's it's the Irish pub around the world. Yeah. <laughs> you know, just knowing that it's there comforts me. Yeah. Um, not to talk too much about drinking, but we will talk about <laughs> spirit of words at the end of this. Um, in the meantime, I'd love for you to find a poem in there while I kind of go over a couple of these other ones, because I, I love Mushrooms by Mary Oliver, because aside from just foraging, it, it talks about this impermanence of, yeah. of such luxury, and you tie it into a recipe with truffle risotto and chanterelles from the French Laundry, and then Potato by Jane Kenyon is, is about how, you know, when you prep a vegetable, sometimes you throw away pieces, or you discard something that can be used for something other than compost. Uh, Absolutely. You know, they, they have such depth and meaning to them rather than just, you know, a mushroom, uh, you know, an ingredient list on a recipe. Yeah. I, and I, I love that poem too. There's so many wonderful ones in here and there is an idea with that poem that we discard the things that can be meaningful and that you want to just use all the ingredients with care and to make them kind of the best that they can be. And actually, can I read a poem? Oh, absolutely. Okay, so everyone asks what my favorite poem is, and it's so, and given the story that I just shared, I always find it difficult to to hone in on just one because they all, as I mentioned, really needed to carry a lot of weight. But I do really love this poem, Pot Roast, by Mark Strand, which is about food and memories. And I think the wonderful thing about this poem is that even if pot roast is not your memory. Everybody has a food memory that they will think about when they hear this poem and they'll sort of be taken back to that time when they tasted it when they were young. I gaze upon the roast that is sliced and laid out on my plate and over it I spoon the juices of carrot and onion and for once I do not regret the passage of time. I sit by a window that looks on a soot-stained brick of buildings and do not care that I see no living thing, not a bird, not a branch in bloom, not a soul moving in the rooms behind the dark panes. These days when there is little to love or to praise, one could do worse than yield to the power of food. So I bend to inhale the steam that rises from my plate, and I think of the first time I tasted a roast like this. It was years ago in Seabright, Nova Scotia. My mother leaned over my dish and filled it, and when I finished, filled it again. I remember the gravy, its odor of garlic and celery, and sopping it up with pieces of bread. And now I taste it again. The meat of memory, the meat of no change. I raise my fork and I eat. I had to give it a moment before I commented, but it's so nice because, again, back to that cyclical comfort. You know, it's something that you can kind of recall, but it's it's not complicated. It's it's yeah. a very easy and straightforward recipe, but it, it it kind of like evokes such complexity in your life because it stops you for a moment, yeah, lets you reflect. And I'm assuming it's winter because of how bleak it is out. Um, <laughs> That's but, probably a safe But but you kind of get to reflect on all the time had and not have to think about what's right in front of you, right. Yeah, it's just, it's such a beautiful poem and it does sort of stop time for a minute and 
we all can kind of go back to that room or that table where we maybe shared a meal with with family and can just go back to maybe a simpler time just for a minute. Yeah. <laughs> there is also Wendell Berry in that book who I think embodies that statement in it of itself. Yeah. Um, and I think the poem is the, the man the born, man born to, to farming. farming. Mm-hmm. And from there, there's a simple corn soup mm-hmm. that again, is, it sounds so satisfying, but at the same time, so fulfilling and it, it sustains yeah. whatever it is you have to do in life. And I think food the best food doesn't have to be fancy or complicated. And I think going back to that conversation about the, you know, real life versus aspirational, I think most of the food we're eating on a daily basis is kind of of the simple variety. It's sustaining and it makes us feel good and it's, it's not overly complicated. Yeah. I'm glad you didn't choose to poetically write these recipes so people can actually (laughs) follow them and, and hopefully cook them because there are some wonderful things in there. And aside from the poetry, which recipes do you hope people actually partake in? Oh gosh, there are so many that I love in here. I think, uh, the minestrone recipe I love, I've actually been hearing from a lot of people. They've been making it, uh, the kale and sweet potato minestrone. And so that makes me excited because I make that soup all the time. I don't even need my recipe anymore. I just throw everything in the pot. Um, and that's the kind of thing that is, that's sort of the food that I cook every day. It's just, it's simple. It's homey. It's, something that I think anyone can do and it's satisfying. And that's the kind of um, the cooking that I tried to put in this book. And so if people are, you know, sitting around enjoying a cup of soup and reading poetry for a minute, I think that's amazing. And all they have to do is check out eatthispoem.com and find out where these books are sold. And, you know, as you said, before about food just being straightforward, simple, and kind of easy to access, so should poetry. I agree. Yeah, absolutely. And I hope that this book also makes poetry more accessible to people as well. Um, I tried to choose poems that I think in some ways are kind of straightforward and the meanings are clear and they're poems that I think people can enjoy and read over and over again. So even if you don't want to cook one day, you can just read the poems and enjoy them. And if not, you gave him a little bit of crib sheets. Yeah. Which is <laughs> right. But thank you again, Nicole. Eat Thanks this for poem. Me. You've been listening to the food scene on Heritage Radio Network.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. Hoping to have you back here next Tuesday at three. Big thank you to Heritage Foods USA, Music by Cookies, and David Tadishore Engineering. Cheers. listening to heritage radio network food radio supported by you for our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events subscribe to our newsletter enter your email at the bottom of our website heritageradionetwork.org connect with us on facebook instagram and twitter at heritage underscore radio heritage radio network is a non-profit organization driving conversations to make the world a better fairer more delicious place And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.